Elevation. Good morning. How is everybody? All right. We have got a really special guest this morning, Justin Goodson. Justin, you want to come up here? Justin is the campus pastor at Twin Rivers, South County. And he, I'm telling you, this morning at 9 a.m., he gave us a word that we needed, a powerful message. We're going to pray over him. First, just everybody give him a big Elevation welcome. Uh, pray with me, church. God, we thank you that you are the God that speaks. You are the God that, that prepares in hearts messages for us, your people. And I pray this morning we would receive the word that you've given Justin for us, God. And I pray that we would not only receive it, but that we would put it into practice in our lives and that we would find freedom, that we would find purpose, that we would be set on fire, set on fire to live as your people, presenting your kingdom in this world. Thank you, God, for this man. Thank you for this word. And God's people said, please be seated. Well, what's going on, Elevation? You guys doing good this morning? Good, good. Well, it is uh, good to be back with you. Um, I've been here multiple times. Just love, love your pastor, Pastor Daniel Gretchen. They are just, um, they have been and are such a gift uh, to my wife and I. We've known them for over eight years now. I meet with your pastor often. Uh, consider him a mentor and just a pastor to me. And so, uh, man, you guys are blessed. I know you know that. But uh, can we just honor uh, your pastors uh, just this morning? Like, we just love them, and I know you do as well. But uh, real quick, I want to introduce my family to you. So uh, I think they got a photo of my family. Um, my wife is actually here. She's on the front row. But uh, anyway, so we celebrate 13 years of marriage next month. And so um, that's my wife, Megan. Um, she's had to put up with me for 13 years. So pray for her. Um, she's easy to love. I'm the difficult one. Um, these are my two kids. It's Hope and Jude. Uh, I love uh, both my kids so much. Like they're just really just such a gift uh, to, to our family. Uh, my daughter's actually here. Um, but um, so that's Hope. She's what I call our leader. Um, and that's just the best way to describe it. Uh, if you're not sure what you should be doing this morning, she's on the front row. Her name's Hope. She'll tell you what to do in a lot of detail. She is uh, just feisty and just knows exactly what she wants. And then uh, that's my son, Jude. Um, he's my little buddy. He is just in kindergarten, so he's very tired because school is stressful, but that's him. Uh, Jude's favorite thing in the world, I say this all the time when I mention my kids, um, his favorite thing in the world, like Friday night, he's like, Dad, can we watch a family movie and snuggle? And I'm like, yeah, buddy. So he's, uh, he's like a puppy. He needs lots of play and lots of physical touch. You rub his head and, you know, he's good. But uh, that's Jude. And so anyway, I just want to introduce my family to you. Um, you know, so anyway, but uh, that's my family. I'm, I'm excited to be with you guys, though, today. And I, I just believe that God has a word for you, something specific, something specific uh, that he wanted me to share this morning. And so we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. I'm going to read kind of a long portion of scripture to you. Then we're going to pray, and then we're going to talk about it. So let's, let's read Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. This is the story of Gideon, if you're not familiar with it, but this is what it says in verse 1. It says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed over them to the Midianites for seven years. So seven years, they're in bondage, seven years. And then it goes on to describe what that looks like. It says, The Midianites were so cruel... Now, the Israelites uh, made hiding places for themselves in mountains and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites would plant crops, it says the people would come in from Midian and Amalek, and the people of the east would attack them. So they're trying to plant, they're trying to feed their families, and they would attack their crops. Verse 4, it says, camping in the land, when they were destroying the crops. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, 
They took all the sheep, all the goats, all the cattle, all the donkeys. You know what's bad when they're stealing your donkeys too, you know? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why that's funny. It just sounded funny. Anyway, uh, so they're stealing your donkeys. So it's these enemies' hordes, they were coming with their livestock and tents, so they were thick as locusts. They arrived in droves on camels, too numerous to count. So there's a ton of them. So in captivity, they're being taken over. It says, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. Verse 6. So Israel, Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And then I love this at the end of that. It says, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. I find it interesting. It took them seven years to cry out to God for help. Nonetheless, God's gracious. In verse 11, skip a few verses. It says, then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the tree, which is in Orpah. and says, and it belonged to Joash, the clan of Abizar. It says, and Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So again, they're attacking. He's hiding. He needs to eat. He's hiding. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And today I wanted to talk to you from the idea is uh, from this story. The idea is how to overcome what's attempting to kill your calling. How to overcome what is attempting to kill your calling. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come to your church and gather with your people and to hear your word. Holy Spirit, we just turn the rest of the service over to you and we say, your will be done. God, I ask that you take my words as imperfect as they are and tailor make them for every person here. Lord, may you pierce hearts, may you convict, convince, and challenge us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Um, So it was years ago, uh, I, I worked at a church in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That's where my wife met. It was the best part of my experience there was getting her, and then we left. And uh, So I was there, though, and uh, back in the day, like, I, I just always tried to do something radical for God. Like, I'm, before Jesus, my life was a whole hot mess. I was depressed and suicidal and attempted suicide multiple times, and God saved me. I was on drugs. Like, God saved me. It was, like, and so when I got saved, I'm like, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. Like, here's my whole life, not just part of my life, not just a little bit, not, not just, a, you know, I, I'm all in. And so when I was in ministry, I, I was always trying to, like, do something radical for God because he did something radical for me. Like, he snatched me out of the, the pit that I was in. And I'm like, Lord, I just want to serve you. Like, I'm, I'm giving you everything. Here's my life. And so we would always try to, like, just do something, like, crazy for God, whether it was wise or not. I don't know, but that's just who we were, you know. Um, and so... On Friday nights, often, we would go to like uh, hard and like kind of um, unsafe parts of town and just preach the gospel to people in the streets. And so one Friday night, uh, we decided to go to a bar in one of the like m- most like unsafe parts of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so we're outside this bar on a Friday night. It's like one in the morning. And we're like, let's go tell people about Jesus. And so I don't know why. I don't know. Like maybe I'm just an adrenaline junkie. Like, I don't know my issue, but yeah, nonetheless. So we're just, you know, so we're outside this bar and we walk up to this bar. It was me and my two friends and two guys come walking out the bar. And so we just go up to him. We're like, Hey, can we talk to you for a second? And so back then, uh, when we, anytime we would talk to people about Jesus in the streets, we had kind of like a script we would go over. And so the script went something like this. So you'd go up to someone. So we did it this night and we'd go up to him and say, Hey, um, do you have a couple seconds to talk? Like, yeah, sure. They're like, they were outside smoking, you know, taking a break from the bar. They're like, yeah, we'll listen to you until I'm done with the cigarette. And so, um, they're smoking and they say, can, can we talk to you? They say, yes. Say, okay. Um, I got a test for you. It's called the good person test. And so first question is, are you a good person? 
And everyone always answers the question by asking if they're a good person by saying, yes. Of course they say yes. And the reason everyone says yes, and the reason you and I would say yes to that is because we measure, measure goodness by the person next to us and not God. The reason I think I'm a good person is because my standard is you, not God. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me good teacher? Nobody's good but God. So even Jesus kind of diverts and says, like, hang on, there's one good. And in Scripture in Romans 3, it says no one's good. No one's righteous. No, not one. But everyone assumes, like, I'm good. I'm not a killer. I'm not a murderer. As if, like, murdering is, like, the standard of bad, you know? Like, that's a low standard. I didn't kill anyone. Anyway, so everyone always says, yes, like, I, I'm, I'm a good person. So, okay, um, well, let me ask you a few questions to see if that's true. Uh, num- number one, um, you ever lied before? And then, you know, immediately everyone's like, oh, where's he going with this? You know, like, dang it, smoking my cigarette, leave me alone. Um, so have, have you ever lied before? Yeah, I've lied. Okay, what do you call someone who's, who's lied before? We well, call him a liar. Okay, uh, next question, have you ever stolen anything? And then they're like, oh, yes, I've stolen something. And then this one always gets the guys. You say, uh, have you ever lusted after anyone? And all the guys are like, yes, of course. And then you, you kind of flip it right there. And you say, okay, um, well, Jesus said, if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So according to your own admission, you're a liar, a thief, and an adulterer at heart. And if you were to die today and stand before God, why in the world does he let you in knowing that's what's against you? And that's just three of the Ten Commandments. We could go over all the rest, and I could prove that you had hate in your heart. Therefore, you have murdered someone. And we could go through every single of the Ten Commandments. And if that's God's standard for letting you into heaven, why does he let you into heaven? Because you're actually not a good person. And then immediately, like, conviction happens. You know, everyone's like, who are you to judge me? Like, it gets funny quick. So this Friday night, that happened. And my buddy was leading the conversation. And it, it just got aggressive. <laughs> like, it just got, like, it, you know, when someone tells you all that stuff and you're at a bar and it's a Friday night, like, no one's excited. They're, oh, please tell me all the ways I'm a bad person. Oh, thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> like no one's excited about that conversation. So it gets aggressive. And then my friend, he's kind of amped up because it's, you know, you're kind of scary. So you're maybe not using the most tact and wisdom in that situation. We had a lot of passion. I don't know if we had a lot of wisdom. So it's getting a, kind of aggressive. And my friend is telling him all the reasons why he's going to hell. And he's describing hell to him. And I'm like, oh my God, we're going to die. Like we're going to get shot. Like we're going to and I'm like sitting there, I'm like, I think I'm the only one of my two friends who's ever been in a fight. And like, it goes from like, we're talking about Jesus to like, one of us is going to meet Jesus. Like it just, it goes bad. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, how do I get myself in these situations? And it's getting aggressive and it's going bad. And I'm like, ah, oh, what am I supposed to do? And I just felt like God gave me something to say. And so like, out of, kind of out of nowhere, I was like, hey guys, like I haven't said anything yet. Let me talk for a second. It kind of calmed you know, what are you going to say? And I look at one of the guys and I said, here's the deal. I was like, you've been told your whole life you're called to ministry. That, that God has a plan for you. That he has a purpose for you. And you've been running from it. And I just let it sit. And it was, again, one in the morning. He takes his sunglasses off. I don't know why he had sunglasses on. Takes his sunglasses off, drops his head. He goes, I don't know how you know that. But that's absolutely true because my grandma is a pastor and she would drag me to church all the time. And she told me my whole life I was called to ministry. I was called to make a difference. I was called to help people. And I've wanted nothing to do with it. And I looked at him, I was like, well, tonight, tonight's night you change that. And right there at one in the morning, him and his friend, 
They both surrendered their life to Jesus. I lead them to the Lord, pray right there outside of a bar. It's an amazing story. Amazing what God will do, even though it's unwise. But the reason I tell you that story is not to impress you. It's not to be like, ooh, look at him. He's used by God. That story's not actually about me. You see, you are the guy in the story. God has a plan for your life. God has a calling on your life. And specifically, God has a ministry for you to do. And you might be thinking, like, ministry? What are you talking about? Like, we're all supposed to work at church? No. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which is God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The moment you get saved, if you're saved in here, you've surrendered your life to Jesus. The moment you become a follower of Jesus, you've been also given a mandate to help other people find and follow Jesus. You've been given a ministry the moment you get saved. The moment, the moment, you, you don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to have someone lay hands on you. You don't, you don't need to, you know, go to the elevate class, even though you should. Like, you don't have to do any of that. Like, you need, like, you are called by God to ministry the moment you give your life to Jesus. The moment. And I think sometimes we disqualify ourselves from the ministry that God's given us because we don't feel like we're equipped. And my, what I would say to you is that if you have a story of how you found Jesus, you're ahead of someone else who needs Jesus, and that's all you need, and that's all God will use to qualify you, to make you, it, it, make you a minister of his gospel. Like, that's why you, you have a story. Like, you, you don't need a degree. You need a story. You need experience. You've had an experience with God, and I... You are already ahead of someone else, and that's all you need. So he's giving you a ministry. So, so what, are you, what are we supposed to do with this ministry? Because it's not just about what you're paid to do. I think sometimes in church, we, we've, done, we, we've confused people by thinking that it's the professionals who get a microphone, and that's who's called to ministry, and everybody else, you get to watch. The, the idea, this is kind of old school terms, but the idea of like clergy and laity, like you ever heard those terms before? That's not even in the Bible. The, the professionals, we all have a different role to play, but we're all called to, to be in ministry. Your role is different than my role. Your grace is different than my grace, but it doesn't mean it's any less significant because we're all, we are all supposed to help people find Jesus. And how you do that is going to be different than how I do that, but it's no less significant just because it's a different role. Like my heart is important and so is my liver. And we are the body of Christ and we need the entire body to be and to do what God's called us to do. It's okay that you're not the mouth in the body of Christ, but maybe you're a hand, maybe you're an eye, maybe you're an ear, maybe you're a foot, maybe you're the spleen, I don't know, whatever it is. Like, we all have a part to play in God's body. And I think so many times we would rather compare, like, I don't like my part in the body, therefore I don't think it's important. Tell that to some lungs. The mo See, every person in this church who's not fulfilling their calling has made this body less, less uh, strong than it should be. Every person in the body of Christ who's not functioning in their God-given calling is hindering what God wants to do. Your part is more important than you think. But it's just a part. It's way more important than you might think. 
See, I think sometimes that we get, we get confused with our profession and our calling. See, your profession is what you're paid to do. Your calling is what you're made to do. Like God made you to make a difference. God made you to do ministry. Whether you ever get paid to do it or not, it doesn't matter. See, satisfying the longings of destiny in your heart is much more important than a paycheck. God will, God will provide for you because he's a provider, but just because you're not in ministry full-time doesn't mean that you're not in ministry. You're in ministry. God wants you to function in his body to do what he's called you to do. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, it says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And John 17, 18, Jesus then looks at you and says, just as I'm sent, so you're sent. So what Jesus came to do, you and I are to continue to do, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which is God wants to bring people back to himself and he uses you and I to do it. That's what you're called to do. That's why you're born. See, the the whole purpose for Jesus saving you isn't to send you to heaven when you die. Did you know that? If his whole goal was just so that you could go to heaven when you die, why doesn't he take you out? If that's the whole win, why would he leave you here? If the whole win is one day when, oh, oh, this heaven's glorious. I'm looking forward to that day. It's tough here. It's rough on these streets, you know, like. I'm looking forward to that day, but I still have a purpose today. That purpose is to make a difference in someone's life. It's what you're called to do. It's what I'm called to do. See, what Gideon finds out in his story really quickly is that every time God has a plan, he then looks for a man to fulfill his plan or woman. Like the moment God has, like he says like, hey, they've been crying out. They've been enslaved. Like I want to set them free. And he's like, hey, Gideon, what you doing? We see this again and again in scripture. The, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. He wants to, God wants to set them free. He goes looking for Moses. Nineveh is bound in sin and God wants them to repent. He sends Jonah. The Gentiles are far from God, have yet to hear the gospel. God sends Paul. So much so is God's plan connected to a man that he sends Jesus, fully God, fully man, to seek and to save that which is lost. You see this all throughout scripture. Everywhere you look at scripture, it's like God has a plan to redeem people. Then he's like, hey, I need someone to accomplish that plan. God's plan is always connected to man's involvement. And there are many things that God wants to do, but he's chosen to do them through his body and he, he's hindered by our obedience. So many times we want God to do what obedience would do. Anyway, not my point. Moving on, moving on. So Judges 6, 14 says this. So back to the story. It says, the Lord turns to Gideon and says to him, go with the strength you have, rescue Israel from the Midianites, for I'm sending you. So God has a plan to rescue Israel from the Midianites. And the first thing he does, he's like, hey, I need a person. And he finds Gideon. But see, with what, what I know about Gideon, I know about you and I, is that just because God has called us to do something doesn't mean we'll always do it. And it doesn't mean it'll work out like God intends. And what we find with Gideon is he has to overcome three different battles so that he doesn't end up killing his calling. So he doesn't end up being taken out so that he can accomplish what God wants. There's three battles that he had to overcome that I think you have to overcome as well. And we're going to spend the rest of the time today talking about that. 
The list isn't exhaustive. I could, you know, come up with some more, but we only have so much. I was told you guys don't want to be here for six hours, and so I just picked three. <laughs> I'm offended by that. I always say, you know, the, the more you amen and shout me down, the faster I preach. And so if you want to be here till one, you know, say nothing. It'll be your fault. But the first battle we see that Gideon has to overcome is his insecurity. Because if you're not secure in who God says you are and what he's called you to do, it's like trying to walk on sand. It's just unsettling. It's just not like grounded. It's not, there's no foundation to it. You always feel like you're going to slip. You always feel like you're going to mess it up. And if you're, you're ever running on sand, you just can't run as fast. You can't run as far. It's just shaky. And that's the same as living with, with insecurity. And what I, what I know about Gideon, he's insecure. I don't know why Gideon is insecure though. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he was from a family that he was picked on. I don't know if he went to junior high and was bullied. Maybe he had buck teeth. I don't know why Gideon is insecure, but he's insecure. And what Gideon responds to God with the moment God calls him, we see this in verse 15. So God tells him like, hey, I'm sending you. Verse 15, he responds, says, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe and I'm the least of my whole family. And I love Gideon's response because it's like Gideon thinks he's teaching God something. Like, hey, God, like you told me I'm supposed to deliver everybody. I'm so you're going to use me to set everybody free. Do you know who I am? Do you know my clan? Do you know my family? Do you know, I'm the weakest in my whole family. Do you, do you sure? Are you sure you have the right person? He's insecure about what the task that God has for him because he's looking at his own strength to accomplish God's will. And he just begins to look inwards and say, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it because of my family. I can't do it because I'm the weakest. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. What I find interesting about this whole situation is that God, it's like Gideon thinks that God is learning something with his rebuttal. As if God is like, huh, what? You're from a small clan? You're, you're the weakest in your whole family? It's like God's in heaven. It's like, Holy Spirit, did you know this? Like, Michael, Angel, come here. We picked Gideon. You guys give me the wrong memo. Is there no one better? Gideon's thinking that his weaknesses disqualify him for the ministry that God has for him, but they're the very reason God called him. Let me explain it. First Corinthians 1, verse 26, it goes on. It says a bunch of things, but it says, according to your calling, brothers, it says, not many are wise, not many are noble, not many are powerful. What he's saying in that passage, he says, when you're called by God, I don't choose the most powerful. I don't choose the most wise. I don't choose those with a great family history. I choose people who have weaknesses because weaknesses make them dependent. And I want people who are dependent on me to do what I've called them to do. That's why a lot of times in the kingdom, God God uses your gifts sometimes, but he also uses your weaknesses most times. It's like, I wish you would have seen me in college. You know, um, 
I was in college. I remember I was a community college and um, I had the speech class and it was painful. Oh, I remember getting my first speech in college. It was just brutal. You know, like I felt bad for everyone who had to listen to me. You know, I'm like, I'm sorry. This was not any good. That joke didn't land. Man, you know, like I'm, I'm so like nervous and sweaty. I'm sure it like stunk the room. I mean, it was just a not good idea. And what I've, what's, what's the reason though, like I'm able to do this is not because I learned the skill of communication. The reason I'm able to do this is because I've learned the skill of falling on my face and saying, God, help me. God, I'm not qualified to do this. Help me. God, I'm not that great. Help me. I'm not that smart. Help me. God doesn't need your perfection. He needs your dependence. So if you ever feel like you're in over your head of what God's asked you to do, you're right. You've probably found something he wants you to do. I feel like I'm drowning. He's there with you. If he feels like it's too much, it's too big, it's too important, there's a reason. And see, what Gideon found to be true is also true for you and I. God doesn't call the perfect version of you. He calls you as you are and then walks with you until you become who he knows you to be. Because the moment God's like, hey, I got something for you to do, you look in the mirror, you're like, oh, I can't do it. Oh, my God. And God's like, I know that about you. I'm not confused. And God has a different vantage point than you and me because he looks into your future, sees who you'll be, and then speaks to you as if you're already there. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is outside of time, looking at all of time, seeing who you'll be. And he's, and he's telling you, you are this because I've been to your future and I've seen it. It's not a hopeful wish. It's already been accomplished in God's mind. God looks at your future and you're standing there doing the thing he's called you to do. And he speaks to your heart and says, this is what you're born for. Again, it's not just like hopeful things. It's not like positive affirmations. Like, I'm a, I'm a smart person. I'm a good leader. Like, no, no, no. God's not giving you positive affirmations. He's been there. And he sees who you are. And he's giving you a glimpse into what's true. That should give you some confidence and who God thinks you are. See, insecurity is this. Insecurity is anything you believe about yourself that God thinks differently than. When you're insecure, it's just you believe something about yourself that God disagrees with you on. Like, he thought I'm the weakest. He thought I'm not the smartest. He thought, and God looks at him and calls him a mighty man of valor, calls him a hero. And if you're going to overcome your insecurities, you're going to have to learn to hear God's voice. And God speaks through his word, his spirit, and his people. You're going to have to have a regular uh, conversation with God through his word, through prayer, and through his church. If you're ever going to think what God thinks about you, if you're going to, if, if you're going to think and know what God says about you, you're going to have to change the way that you think and how the way and you're going to have to hear God's voice. And again, God speaks through his word, his spirit, and his people. You have to have a regular conversation with him. You're going to have to hear what he says about you, because what, what's true is Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And we're, many of us, the thoughts we think about ourselves are not God's thoughts. And for us to do what God wants us to do, it starts in our thinking. 
Because the thoughts you think end up believing, end up being your beliefs. Your beliefs produce your actions. Your actions produce your lifestyle. And your lifestyle is how you live out your calling. So your calling begins by thinking God's thoughts about you. You have to change the way that you think. That's the, the word repentance in scripture. God regularly says, repent, 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 repent. We hear that sometimes as a bad word. It really just means to change the way you think. Agree with God. He's right. I'm wrong. What he says about me is true, not what I say about me. Like he gets to determine all of that. So I do this uh, thing with my kids often because I, I know how the enemy works. Like the enemy just wants you to be insecure. Like he really does. He just wants you to be like running on sand all throughout your life. He just wants you to be on shaky, a shaky foundation. And so I do this thing with my kids all the time because I know how the enemy works. He attacks your appearance. He attacks your calling. He attacks uh, your relationship with God. He just comes at you with all these attacks. I, I, I know that as a dad. So I do this thing with my kids. I do this with both my, my son and my daughter. But I'll just use my daughter for an example. So I look at her and say, Hope, like what's dad think about you? What's dad think about you? And if you're a parent in here, you absolutely should do this with your children. It'll change them. But I look at her and say, what's daddy think about you? And she repeats, this, we have these phrases. She says, well, I'm smart. I'm cute. You love me. You're proud of me. I'm a brave leader, and I'll always be your buddy. We've added a few more because she's older. But the reason I get her to do that is because I want, when the enemy comes in and attacks her identity and tries to implant some insecurities in her, I want her to hear the voice of her father combating every lie of the enemy. And what's true of my daughter is also true of you, that you have a heavenly father, that you need to know what he thinks about you, that you are the apple of his eye, that you didn't even choose him, that he chose you and appointed, it, appointed you that you should bear fruit and that fruit should remain. Like he picked you, he chose you, he knows you so well, loves you so much that the very hairs on your head are numbered and counted by him. That's how much God loves you, has a plan for you. And you've got to know what your father thinks about you or you'll live out of insecurity. The first thing you're going to have to, the thing that's going to kill your calling, is just the fact that you're insecure and you don't believe. You have a belief about yourself that is different than God. And you have to repent. Change the way you think. Here's the second thing. Judges 6, verse 25. It says, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Pull down your father's altars to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. And then he asked him to make some sacrifices to the Lord. What, what he's asking Gideon to do is to get rid of the compromise in the Israelites. They had set up these different altars. They had worshipped false gods. And because of it, they're enslaved. Because of it, they're in bondage. So the second thing you and I are going to have to overcome, we're going to have to overcome our compromise. And this is the part where you're, I'm going to step on your toes and it's going to be fine. You're going to like it. Maybe not. But you have great pastors here who can help you through it afterwards. Um, I'll be gone. And so, but you have, you have to overcome your compromise. Like we all have compromise. We all have things that we do, that we think, that we say, that we live, that we, we know are wrong, but for whatever reason, we're just not willing to let go of them yet. For whatever reason, there's just parts of our lives that God's not fully Lord and we still are. And we see this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, they don't, they don't have this verse, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Verse 21. It says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The analogy is like this. You, you know, um, my wife and I, we're not fancy, um, but the analogy would be like this. Like if you have like fine china and a paper plate and the paper plate is dirty and the fine china is all beautiful and it's clean, like which one would you serve your guests something to drink from? The nice clean one. Why? Because if I pour water out of something that's unclean, it taints what I'm pouring it into. The same is true of people. If there's compromise in me when I'm trying to help others, I'm tainting instead of refreshing. And I don't say that to like condemn you. I'm not saying that to beat you up. I'm not saying you have to be perfect either. But I am saying you have to grow. I'm saying whatever level of compromise, sin is in your life, get better, grow, change, come out of that. Because you can't live like everyone else and then expect to help them. God has asked us to be holy, set apart for his use. See, regularly, um, I was in youth ministry for a long time, and so people would always ask this question. They would say, Justin, can I be a Christian and, and then you know, fill in the blank. You know, specifically junior high kids and high school kids, specifically high school, it usually had to do with some like sexual sin they were in. They're like, can I, you know, what? And it's like, no, you can't do that. No. But the, the question was always, can I be a Christian and fill in the blank, fill in the blank with whatever pet thing, you know, they liked. Like, can I be a Christian and cuss? Can I be a Christian and drink? Well, how, how, how many drinks are bad? And can I be a Christian and watch this show? It's got a little bit of nudity in it, but like, is it bad? Can I still watch it even though it's kind of, you know, sketchy? Or, or, or now that marijuana is legal, can I, can I smoke that and be a Christian? And here's the problem. If you're kind of new to the whole Christian thing, like maybe that question comes from a pure heart. That's fine. Read the Bible. There's a lot that God has to say about right and wrong. Follow his way, not yours. But for many of us, asking that question reveals the problem. Can I and still be a Christian? Let me break it down this way. That would be like me going to my wife, be like, sweetheart, I love you. I'm so glad we're married. But can I flirt with other women and us still be married? Can I do some late night texting with someone who's not you? Uh, is that okay? What about a date? Is that okay? What about like, you know, sliding into her DMs? Is that cool? Like, I don't, I don't know like where the line is because I don't want to get a divorce, but I want to do what I want. And for many of us, we treat God the same way. We don't want to get kicked out of his kingdom, but we also don't want to surrender our lives to him. And the question produces the problem. And the problem, see, the goal of my marriage is not to skate through and just don't get divorced. What a terrible goal. Like, that's not the goal. I want a loving, thriving marriage with my wife. I don't want to just not get divorced. Like, that's a low standard. It's, it's not like, oh, we made it. Oh, thank God you forgave me a lot because I did what I wanted. That's not the goal. The goal, I want to build a thriving relationship with my wife. Therefore, I'm not trying to add anyone or anything to our marriage that would hurt the closeness of our marriage. 
And the same thing is true is if you view your relationship with God as a relationship and not just a bunch of rules so that you make it to heaven one day. It's, it's not that. It's a relationship. And if I want to be close to you, I will do things that please you, that honor you, that you enjoy, and we will walk together in a relationship. It's not just a bunch of rules that I have to follow. And oh, God's trying to steal my fun. Sin is fun for a moment, but it always has some consequences tied to it. See, this is why Hebrews 12, 2 says this, says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that trips us up. See, just because it's not sin doesn't mean it's a good idea either. And just because you're not technically doing anything wrong doesn't mean it's wise. And if you're going to do the thing that God has called you to do, you have to get rid of some compromise. I regularly think this of myself and say this to myself, like others may, I cannot. I'm not their judge. I have one judge. I have one king, one Lord. My goal is to please him as best as I can. And, I, and I'm going to mess it up and you're going to mess it up. Scripture would say the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. I'm not saying you can never fall. I'm saying you can't lay down. Get up, fight. You messed up, okay? His grace is sufficient. His mercy is new every day. Fight again. Resist temptation again. Cut off the compromise. Here's the last thing that you're going to have to overcome so it doesn't kill your calling. It's fear. You have to overcome fear. I think fear has taken out more people's calling than just about anything else. For whatever reason, like we're just afraid to be used by God. We're afraid to take a step. We're afraid to live by faith. Let me help you out. God will not give you a life that doesn't require faith. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. God's not going to give you a life that doesn't please him. Therefore, you're going to have to learn to walk by faith. And many times, fear hinders faith. Why is fear a big deal? Fear is a big deal because it, it does two things. When it comes to fear, you usually have two responses. It's either inaction or overaction. Fear either gets you to do nothing or fear gets you to obsessively control everything. Because I'm afraid, I got to control it. I got to fix it. I got to meddle with it. I, I got to make it happen. And I got to figure out how. And, and I, God needs my help to control the outcome. Or I'm just crippled and I don't, I don't, I can't move forward. I can't take a step. I can't go to the elevate class. I, I can't take, I can't get in a life group. I, I just can't do anything because I, I don't, I don't know where God's going to send me. I don't know what God's going to do. <sighs> We're just crippled by fear. What's true though about fear is that every fear is built on the foundation of a lie. Because why do I say that? Because fear takes what is possible and prophesies to you that it's going to happen. Yeah, like a lot of our fears, that crazy outcome could happen, I guess. But fear prophesies and says it will happen. It guarantees the outcome when it's unknown. It says you can't do that because fill in the blank with some awful situation. You can't take a step of faith because you're going to get rejected. How do you know that? And it's simply, you have to identify fear at its source. And every fear is, is just built on this foundation of lies. 
That's why 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 1 7, you have to identify where where is your fear coming from? Because it's not from God. God never leads through fear. If your decisions are based out of fear, you're making decisions not based on God's will. God never leads through fear. He has no fear to give you. That's why, again, 2 Timothy 1 7, it says, for God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Where's your fear coming from? Not God. It says, for God has not, for God will not give you a spirit of fear. See, the reason why, see, fear is the opposite of power because it makes you feel weak. Fear is the opposite of love because it makes you selfish. And fear is the opposite of a sound mind because it makes you confused. What comes from God is power, love, and a sound mind, not fear. And you combat fear by knowing the truth. That's why John 8.32 says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because every lie you believe is a chain of bondage that you carry. And a lie believed as true will affect you as if it were true. When I believe lies, it affects me as if what is false is actually true. What do I mean by that? Let Let me give you an example. If you believe you're worthless, you'll let people mistreat you. Every dysfunctional relationship I've ever seen is built on the idea that I'm worthless, therefore I deserve to be mistreated. If you believe you're too messed up to come to God, if you believe that, you're never going to come to him. And that's why you have to know the truth, because it's the truth that'll set you free. See, for some of you, the fear that you have is that you're, you're never going to do you know, I'm talking about being called by God and don't kill your calling. And, and your fear is literally like, I, I can't do that. I can't do what God's asked me to do. God doesn't love me. God, See, Scripture would say, though, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that, that before you were formed in your mother's womb, that God knew you and had a plan for you. The, John 15 would say that you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. Like God has a plan for you, whether you're, you feel like it or not. For some of you, you're stuck in an addiction and you think because of this addiction, God can't use me. But 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that old things are passed away. Behold, all things are brand new. That as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed your transgressions from you. That your past doesn't disqualify you because God has actually forgotten it. Like, like you can't. That's why in Romans 12, 29, it says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Like God called you whether you've screwed up or not. God has a plan for you whether you've made a mistake or not. Just because you've made a mistake doesn't mean you're disqualified. It means his grace is new. His mercy is sufficient. It means that he he needs to work in your life like he needs to work in all of our lives. You know, the other day um, I was sitting on my recliner because God loves the recliner. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm napping that thing. Ah, me and the Lord enjoy some peace and rest in the recliner. Um, so I'm hanging out in my recliner and, uh, in our basement, uh, we have like, we, we put up like multiple swings. Like we just screwed them into the ceiling and my children love it, especially in winter lets them play cause they have energy and they need to play. Um, and so they're in the basement swinging and my, I hear them swinging cause it's loud. And, and then all of a sudden this like scream comes out of nowhere. And it's my son. He's freaking out. Uh, I guess he had fallen off this, the swing and he is just, you know, you would think he lost a finger you know, with how much he's screaming. 
And he runs upstairs and he sits on the recliner with me and he's bawling and he's so mad and so hurt and so frustrated. And he's telling me all the reasons why through his tears, he will never get on that swing again. He's like, dad, it hurt. I hate the swing. I'm never getting on the swing. Ah!" You know, he's just screaming, freaking out. And I listened to him for a little bit and I go, Hey buddy, how about I go downstairs with you and you get on the swing again? And he kind of snapped out of it. He's like, okay. And we walk downstairs. And I sit on the swing. He sits on my lap. We get on the swing again. He was afraid to enjoy something. But the moment the presence of his father showed up, he could do it again. I know it's scary. I know for many of you, you've been hurt. But God is saying it's time to step out again. It's time to do the thing that you were born to do. I know it might feel big. I know it might feel scary. I know you might feel like you've tried that. How do you combat fear? You identify its source. You refuse to believe the lie. And you simply just run to the presence of your father. What my son found out is it's not as scary as he thought. It's not as dangerous as he believed. He just needed some help. I'm going to have the team come up and we're going to worship for just a minute. But what I believe to be true about you and about today is I just believe there's a lot of gifts a lot of callings, a lot of dreams that are just lying a little dormant. And maybe you've given up on the idea that God could use you. Maybe you've given up on the idea that you can help people and make a difference. Maybe you've disqualified yourself. Because, man, you don't know my past. I would say I don't have to know your past because I know your Savior. And He can redeem your story. And my hope is that this church, that there wouldn't be a single person not fulfilling their calling. That we would be a healthy body making a difference in St. Louis, making a difference in Fenton. I don't know about you, but I want to make it hard to go to hell in St. Louis. I don't know about you, I want to make it difficult for people to find their way away from God, that they would crawl away from God over our prayers, over our service, over our love, over our sacrifice. If you want to find your way away from God, you're coming through me to to get there. What would it look like if the whole church was like that? That you would play your part, fulfill your calling, and not allow the enemy to kill it. Let me pray for you, then we're going to close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to speak to your people, to communicate your word. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would begin to speak to hearts in this room. God, that you would begin to speak to callings, to purpose, to destiny. God, that you would open eyes. Lord, you said in your word that eyes to see and ears to hear are gifts from you. 
God, I pray right now in this moment, you begin to speak to people's hearts and blow on afresh the dreams that they've had, the callings that they've had, the ministries that they've had, the ideas to reach people that they've had. God, that you would awaken ministry this morning. With your eyes closed, with your head bowed, we, I, don't, I don't wanna move on today without giving anyone in here the opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus. You know, I'm talking about your calling and what God wants you to do and what he made you to do. That begins by surrendering your life to him. That begins by a relationship with him. And a relationship with him is simple. It's, 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 the foundation is two things. First, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for your sin in your place, that he was crucified, dead, and raised back to life? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? And the second thing, are you then willing to surrender your life to him? Not be perfect, not join this church, but to surrender your life to him. Say, Jesus, you're Lord, I'm, I'm not. You're in charge, I'm not. I'm yours. So if that's you this morning and you're making a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, we're not gonna embarrass you or point you out or do anything like that. We just wanna pray for you, pray with you. So if that's you this morning, you're saying, I, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I need to start this calling by giving him my life. If that's you this morning, I just want you to do something simple. Just lift up your hand. I just wanna see you so we can pray together. Is there anybody in here? I see you. Is there anybody else? Anybody else? You're saying, I, I, need, I see you. Anybody else say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Any, anybody else? Anybody else? I see you. Well, church, let's all pray together. Just repeat this after me. Say, dear Jesus, I commit my life to you. I ask you to forgive me as I surrender my life to you. Make me new. Help me walk free from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we give it up for those people who made the decision to follow Jesus? literally is the best decision you'll ever make. But uh, in just a moment, we're going to go into worship again. I just want you to, during this song, just pause, consider, think about what we talked about. Because there's purpose inside of you. There's destiny inside of you. There's a calling inside of you. And it's the thing you were born to do. Don't run from it. Don't hide it. Surrender. Amen. Let's worship.